Welcome to episode 397 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. On this week's episode, we have an insightful, earnest conversation with Nizhmi Zakaya Zorinko. And uh, she is a black, working-class human rights organizer and strategist and co-founder of Put People First PA. We talk about her background, early school days, the first Gulf War from southwestern Pennsylvania to southeastern PA and Philadelphia, the Poor People's Campaign, the Poverty Initiative, the National Union of the Homeless, Common Threads, and uh, the interconnectedness of all the problems we as a species face, among other things. An earnest, insightful, wonderful conversation with Nizhmi Zakaya Zarinko on this week's episode. We also have an EW essay titled On a Park Bench. A new radio play written by our associate producer, Dr. Michael Pavise, titled The Lonesome Cowboy, Episode 4, as performed by Dominic Azzarelli. And an EW poem called Wasp. Of course, all of this will be imbued and infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. It's so nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 397 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Okay. 
keep me waiting on some SMS Don't keep it all so close to the vest Poverty, contrasted with my privileged discontent, is almost too much to accept. How one man in this moment can be so spiritually shallow and intellectually dishonest with himself has me pausing for a moment, looking for a way to circumvent the realization, the properly positioned lament. Can one genuinely, selflessly repent? Has the ability to be completely objective when assessing one's role, one's place, been achieved by me, so circumspect and honestly reviewing this stead in my head? I can hear the silent cries of confusion and the secure Pathian of lullabies from those considered the dregs and those thought of as the top tier of our human web 
all of the talk and walking of the walk, the clouds floating carelessly by in the deep blue sky, as I barely try to understand why I am here and you are there, and that it is everything, nothing, something, here and now, not nowhere. The root of this breath is from the heart and soul of all existence. In the eyes of my beautiful sister, who I hardly know, she warms this world with love and courage vibrant and boundless. I look around us to witness the oneness of all humanity. This clarity speaks truth as power toward a renewed sense of great purpose and responsibility. Hello.
Hi, this is Nijmi. Nijmi, it's nice to have you on Troubadours and Rock on Tours. Let me give the folks a little background information before we get started. Nijmi Zakaya Zarinko is a black working class human rights organizer and strategist of over 20 years from Pennsylvania. She is a co-founder and co-coordinator on a volunteer basis of Put People First PA a statewide base-building human rights organization waging a health care is a human right campaign. They are also volunteer co-chair of the Pennsylvania Poor People's Campaign and a member of the National Steering Committee. Nijmi serves on the executive board of the National Union of the Homeless and is also a member of the University of the Poor and the Popular Education Project. Troubadours and Rock On Tours is happy to have on the program Nijmi Zakaya Zarinko. Thanks so much for taking thank some time out. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, my, my middle name is Zakia, but thank you. <laughs> Your middle name is Zakia? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was, uh, I was working on the pronunciation because... <laughs> You know, it's not familiar to me. My, you know, my learning curve hopefully was was decent, um, but uh, no worries. <laughs> it's good to have you on and a lot of stuff to talk about. So let's jump right in. Why don't you uh, give us a little bit of info about your background and how you got into organizing and uh, human rights activism? Sure. Um, so I really fell into it through life experience. I grew up in Westmoreland County in southwestern Pennsylvania. I uh, was raised by my grandparents. My grandfather was a steel worker. And when I was growing up, the industry was really shutting down and all of the jobs went away in the 80s. And the town uh, that I grew up in, Manesson, uh, really found itself in a in a tough spot, which is the same story with many, many, many places around the state and also the country. Uh, so I experienced that as a child and also uh, a lot of other things in my family and really just asked why a lot, found myself trying to understand what was going on around me and realizing that it was bigger than the individual people around me, that there were other forces at play. And so that's really how I started to 
become interested in politics and understanding how society works and how the economy works. When was that? What decade are we talking? When you were a child and you started having these realizations? In the 80s. In the 80s. Mm-hmm. And uh, so did you find a lot of your peers uh, realizing the same sort of um, challenges or questions as you were at the time and you can commiserate with them? Um, I was an only child and uh, I don't, you know, I don't think that uh, too many other kids were thinking about some of the same things I was or if they were, I didn't necessarily know. Um, so... Yeah, I, <laughs> I'm i not sure uh, if I can get a read on, on where, you know, the seven and eight and nine-year-olds' heads were at at that point. I mean, I remember thinking about these things when I was five and six years old, so I wasn't really talking about it with other five and six-year-olds at the time. Right, yeah, that makes sense. And then as you get older, you get into middle school and high school. Was that experience something um, of, uh, I guess... Uh, a set of opportunities to to start to b- building your your skill set and your knowledge base so that you could uh, do something about what you thought needed to be done, or did you was it was it a good experience? I guess. Well, yeah. When I uh, I actually was homeschooled until the age of seven, and then I was tested and put into fourth grade. So I never went to school before fourth grade. And um, I uh, was really into school because it was something that got me out of my house. So I was super committed to being in school as much as possible. So I did as much as I could to join different clubs and organizations and uh, do whatever to just spend as much time as possible in school. So that was kind of my escape. Um, So, yeah, school and education was always something that I kind of turned to. Uh, and got involved as in, in high school, um, you know, in activism around the first Gulf War. Um, and then I uh, left home at 16 uh, and actually went to the University of Pennsylvania. So I've been living in Philadelphia since I was 16 years old. Um, and, you know, really uh, over, over a long period of time and, and many different uh, educational and training uh, spaces, you know, started to develop and understand, um, you know, how I wanted to make an impact in the world. So, yeah, I mean, it's been a learning process over, over a long period of time, and I think it takes time uh, to develop as a leader. Um, you know, I come from an orientation where everyday people um, are, are leaders, but also we need to be developed, and I know that I was developed over a long period of time. It it wasn't overnight. It wasn't just through one action or one mobilization or or one even just season of of actions. It was really years of training and development. So, yeah, I I totally understand what you're saying. I've been involved in some groups where, you you know, what you try and do is give people the, the means to develop, uh, you know, and, and understand 
how things work and what access they could have to be leaders themselves and then pass that on. I mean, you have to have the gumption to start, of course, but then you need the knowledge, right? You need you need to know how things work and uh, and then maybe re, redesign things if you think they need to be redesigned. But first, got to know how they work. Yeah, that's right. Absolutely. Um, so you're, you went from basically southwestern PA to southeastern PA. Uh, Philly's a great town, I think. I don't know if you're having – you've been there for a while, so I presume you like it. I do. Yeah, it's a it's a great place. Absolutely. And uh you you've been doing you've been developing institutions it seems, you know. Uh I don't know how much ro- brick and mortar uh, there's involved, but definitely uh, a culture, a, a mindset, philosophy. Uh University of the Poor. Um can you tell us a little bit about that or the Poor People's uh, Campaign in Pennsylvania? Can you tell us a little bit more about those uh institutions? Sure, definitely. So, um, I mean, one, I just really want to give credit to um, one of my closest mentors, Willie Baptist, who is a formerly homeless father uh, who co-founded or founded the National Union of the Homeless in the 80s when I was just a kid. I didn't know anything about it at that point. Um, But the National Union of the Homeless was a national organization of homeless folks who were organizing um, you know, many of whom had been uh, like, you know, my grandfather and others, folks who had been thrown out of industrial production and were jobless and organized across uh, 25 cities and had thousands of members and then organized in the 80s and early 90s and then went into decline. Um, but many things came out of that process. And one of them was the poverty initiative at Union Theological Seminary, where Willie, uh, who, like I said, was a founder of the National Union of the Homeless, uh, became a kind of organic scholar in residence in the mid 2000s, about 2005. And that's when I met him, uh, and I became part of the poverty initiative because at the time I was organizing with young people in Philadelphia public schools. And the Poverty Initiative was really a think tank uh, for the poor and dispossessed, so bringing together leaders from different organizations and fronts of struggle across the U.S. and putting us into relationship with each other. And we studied uh, liberation theology and history, uh, and we also immersed ourselves in different uh, contexts like mountaintop removal in West Virginia or um, down in the Gulf Coast after Hurricane Katrina, for example. So we did immersion trips and we did schools in different places. And so that process from 2005 um, to about really, um, you know, 2015 or or later um, was a precursor to the Poor People's Campaign. Um, So we really drew a lot of our inspiration uh, from the original Poor People's Campaign of 1968, which is well, the last thing that Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King and others, like folks in the National Welfare Rights Movement, did. But it was the last thing that he did before he was assassinated. And um, he really uh, made some pivots, right, from being at the forefront of a civil rights struggle to um, really understanding that it was needed to become a human rights struggle 
um, a pivot from what he called an area of reform, a, a, a time of reform to a time of revolution, um, and a pivot from looking at racism as a single issue to looking at the interconnection between racism, poverty, and militarism. That was the foundation of the original Poor People's Campaign, and it did get off the ground. He was assassinated shortly after it launched. They did a major encampment called Resurrection City on the National Mall for about six weeks. But there really wasn't enough uh, relationships built and really deep uh, strategy and commitment, you know, before launching the campaign. So we wanted to learn from that process and do things differently. And so in 2008, uh, 10 years before the 50th anniversary of the original campaign, we called for reigniting the campaign, but we were already putting a lot of effort and time into uniting and developing leaders and building trust among among folks so that we would have what we call many Martins. You know, one of the real weaknesses of the first campaign is that, you know, Martin Luther King was a central leader and a figurehead and you you took him out and you took out everything. Mm -hmm. So we've really worked to uh, change that dynamic and do the lead up, do the work in the lead up so that when we reignited the campaign in in, uh, 2018, there had been years of building both across the country through the Poverty Initiative and the Cairo Center and also through the Moral Mondays movement in North Carolina, which we linked up with and brought Reverend Barber into um, into the orbit of, of what we were talking about, and then he took it up as well. And and so that brings us to the present time. And um, through all of your study and experience, can you uh, identify a couple, a few common threads that continue uh, uh, within the, the the tapestry of, I guess, to go along with the thread uh, reference, of, uh, of, of poverty, of, of injustice? Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a great question. I mean, I think some of the, the really key themes that have been echoing throughout um, my development and training has certainly been um, some of the things that are the hallmarks of the the poor people's campaign then and now, which are that we really have to look at the inseparable connection between poverty, systemic racism, militarism, and environmental devastation. We really can't approach any of those core issues without the others because they're all so deeply intertwined. So I think that's one thing is sort of really having a holistic view and thinking about uh, how we need systemic change. We, we can't simply be looking at things as single issues. Of course, we can fight on issues. We can fight on different fronts of struggle and as different communities, but we always have to do that with the lens of and connected to the whole, um, not just the part, um, with a really deep analysis of the, the structure of the whole. So I think those are some key things. And then the question of who, right? So who are we to organize and, and unite? And that, in our estimation, is the poor and dispossessed. And when we say that, what we mean is 140 million people in this country that the Poor People's Campaign has calculated live at or below 200% of the federal poverty line. Hmm. That's almost half of the country. Uh, and, you know, we don't often 
hear or see that. What we see in the media is that the poor are a small number of people. They're unlucky. They're all black, um, right? That's kind of what we see is that it's it's somehow marginalized, racialized uh, as to what poverty looks like in this country when really it's a very, very uh, broad cross-section of people from every community and every gender and every background. And so for us, um, it's the poor and dispossessed that across lines of division who really need to come together and to be, be united and organized. Uh, and that isn't to say that we minimize um, the differences that we have, but we do have to understand how those differences have been created and been enforced and not simply take them as natural or given. And if we do that, then you know, we'll be able to understand the fundamental problem, which is the growing divide uh, between the very, you know, the hoarding of wealth in very, very few hands and the impoverishment of the masses of people, not only in the U.S., but around the world. So I think those are some of the common themes. Very well uh, stated and analyzed. I appreciate it. Uh, talking to Nijmi Zarenko, and, um, you know, it's so many questions pop into my head uh, you know, given what you're you're sharing with us, I one one thing that pops into my head is, uh, you know, obviously it takes a lot a lot of intelligence to be able to embrace what you're embracing, and a lot of endurance, uh, you know, a lot of strength to to persevere. Now the other thing is it's got to take a lot of heart uh, and soul. Otherwise, you wouldn't do it. I would I would think. Um, so I, from the heart and the soul, when you look at your fellow human beings, the history of, of humanity in the present day, and you see, you know, these attempts to divide by those in power and those who aren't in power but are privileged not doing anything at the same time, how does that affect your heart and soul? Yeah, thanks for asking. I mean, I think that we we live in really difficult times. It affects me very deeply. It affects members of my family. I have members of my family who are currently experiencing homelessness. I have members of my family who've experienced addiction and overdose and um, joblessness and uh, incarceration and, you know, many, many, many of the attacks uh, on our class. So, you know, it affects me in a very personal way. And it also, um, you know, affects me in just the way that things are for, for humanity, for everyone, uh, almost everyone across the, the world. I've been really uh, lucky to be able to travel to places like South Africa, to places like Brazil, to really build uh, proletarian internationalism with, you know, comrades around the, the globe. Um, but I think that, you know, what gives me heart and I think what gives Put People First Pennsylvania, the Poor People's Campaign in general heart is that, you know, we've got to really stay close to the people and we really do the basis of our work is base building. And what we mean by base building is actually going and having conversations with people that you don't know and uh, talking to them and bringing them into the work. Now, before COVID, of course, we did a lot of that door to door, 
but we're still doing it even during the pandemic. Um, we do it online. We do it through, you know, car caravans and other kinds of actions. Sometimes they are outdoors that are safe and, and socially distanced and with masks. And we're continuing to, to base build, to, to meet people, to engage in what we call projects of survival. Some people say mutual aid, but for us it's more in the tradition of the Black Panther Party, which was free breakfast programs and free health clinics, but also organizing, right, alongside those things. And that's, that's how we do it. Uh, not, not providing things to take the place of the state, but providing things to organize people uh, to understand that we have to actually take over and transform um, the state. So, you know, what, what gives me heart is in doing that base building and connecting with um, everyday people, you really see the potential of the working class, right? You see how the way that we're portrayed in the media and in many institutions, right, in, in the church, in the educational system, uh, you know, from the politicians and certainly from members of the ruling class, is a lot of, a lot of it is lies, right? Um, we're, you know, there's a narrative right now about how much there's two Americas, right? There's a red and a blue America, and we're, you know, diametrically opposed. But actually, the working class is objectively united in this country because we're all experiencing, uh, you know, the crash of the, you know, the economy, the global economic crisis. We're experiencing the pandemic. Uh, we're, you know, low-wage workers who are forced to go to work and get exposed to the virus and potentially die or stay at home and starve. Uh, we're being evicted from our homes. We're having to figure out how to educate young people in very, very difficult conditions. And these are things that are being experienced by people across the so-called partisan divide um, that are all members of the working class. So I think what gives me heart is staying very connected and bringing new people into organization, right? Our organization is our power and being really in touch with what's happening in people's lives and seeing how people are absolutely able to grow and develop and shift and change. And we all need to do that. That's not just on, you know, other people, you know, it's on all of us to be changing and to be growing. Uh, and, and I think that's very possible. I've seen it, you know, I'm, done it i've been involved with it i currently am and i think that's very hopeful great yeah it uh it it is when when you when you look at people and especially those who struggle you see humanity i think a lot of times in its in its deepest most beautiful form um often i you know from my limited experience as compared to folks who have everything handed to them um you know, it's nice to be secure, for sure, and we all deserve that. Uh, and I'm not trying to romanticize being poor or, or, or in, in difficult situations, though it, often it does bring out the best. We have to dig deep. So you see that, I'm sure, in many ways, and it must be inspiring. Uh, and what you're sharing with me is very inspiring, too. I, I, if, if anybody would like to, to uh, get more information about the organizations and the uh, the efforts that you're involved in, how could they do that? Sure. So if you're online, um, you can go to 
putpeoplefirstpa.org. That's Put People First Pennsylvania. That is an organization that I co-founded in 2012 here in PA, and I'm a co-coordinator as a volunteer um, with that organization. And you can also go to poorpeoplescampaign.org. That's the national Poor People's Campaign website. You can sign up there, and if you're in Pennsylvania, you will automatically um, get Pennsylvania updates. Um, And, you know, the Poor People's Campaign is active in 40 states, so even if you're not in PA, you you should still sign up and hear what's going on in your state. Um, Also, the University of the Poor uh, at universityofthepoor.org is a really great place for... um, different content, articles, um, teachings that are very relevant to this strategy of uniting the 140 million poor and dispossessed people in this country across lines of division to tackle systemic racism, poverty, environmental devastation, and militarism. So um, that's a really great resource uh, that will be, you know, very different than both Fox and MSNBC. Um, So... You know, I would recommend that as well. Excellent. And, um, you know, we're talking the day before Thanksgiving, you and I, and this will be airing for the next couple of weeks on various venues. I think it's a good opportunity for maybe me to ask you, uh, what are you thankful for? Yeah, thanks. That's a great question. I mean, I'm super thankful for... Um, this movement, honestly, I'm very, very thankful for the Poor People's Campaign, a national call for moral revival, um, because I do honestly think it's the one thing that's out there and the, the, the sort of biggest thing, most visible thing that's out there that's really talking about how we build power for the working class as a whole in this country and talking about the fundamental problems. Uh, in a way that's bringing in lots and lots of people around the country. And, you know, my mentor likes to say the unsung saints, you know, unsung heroines of, um, you know, our class across the country that are, you know, in small towns, in, in cities, in rural areas, in suburbs, across the board, just doing the work day in and day out who, you know, may not, uh, you know, we may not know their names all the time. They may not be famous people, but they're really people, just like in the history of all movements, who are, you know, organizing uh, and, and, and really lifting up the power that we have um, as poor and dispossessed people. So I'm very, very thankful for the, the Poor People's Campaign and National Call for Moral Revival. And I'm very grateful for all of the people that I organize with here in Pennsylvania and also, you know, want to say thank you to you for having me on and, you know, giving me an opportunity to, to talk about this and for, you know, respectfully engaging with, with me on it. I really appreciate that. Oh, thank you. It's my honor and pleasure uh, to have you on Troubadours and Rock On Tours, and I'd love to have you on again. I'm sure we can, we can continue this conversation indefinitely. A lot to talk about. Absolutely. I'd love to come on some other time. Well, until next time, um, have a nice holiday season, and uh, thank you again for for all your efforts to bring us together uh, so that we can work together uh, to build a better society. I appreciate it very very much. Thank you, Lawrence. Thank you very much, and you as well. Take care.
Take care. Bye-bye. Yeah.
I am the lonesome cowboy. And lately this cowboy has been feeling poorly. I had no energy on the trail and sometimes felt woozy in the saddle. And I'd often have to find a bush behind which to find relief. I'm spotting bushes as keenly as my faithful canine companion, Petey. So I rode into town one day for a visit with old Doc Maloney. Young Doc Maloney was off at the Henderson Farms, seeing to the birth of yet another Henderson child. Old Doc Maloney was snoozing in his office chair, and truth to tell, is in no fine shape himself. He was always an ornery cuss. He roused himself, grumbled a bit, and performed a medical inspection on my sorry self. Well, cowboy, Doc says, if you're not careful, you're going to get the beaties. You could lose a foot. Do you want to lose a foot? I did not. I'd seen my share of one-eared cowboys, one-eyed cowboys, and one-legged cowboys and did not want to join their ranks. The dreaded beaties. My diet of beans and maple syrup and juicy hot dogs grilled over a fire on a stick, and all in fatty whatnots I've devoured on the trail and had caught up with me. I thought back to my poor mother. Boy, she used to say, I want you to grow up strong and healthy. No son of mine is going to get the beaties. Are you listening, boy? I rarely listened to her satisfaction, so she chased me around the room with the broom. Ah, mother, your boy has failed you. Once I thought I had the gout, which is bad enough, and now I've let my mother down and gone and got the beaties. You're going to have to change your lifestyle, old Doc Maloney growled. I didn't know I had a lifestyle, I replied. Don't contradict me, the old Doc yelled. Contradiction leads directly to the beaties. I was beginning to wonder if old Doc Maloney had all his cotton balls, so to speak. He was getting more and more ornery as he headed deeper into geezerhood. He fell back onto his office chair, red-faced and exhausted from his exertions. Greens, he gasped. Greens, I queried. Greens, eat lots of greens and stay away from greasy meats and sweet cakes and cheap beer, and rot-gut whiskey. The old doc had just named my favorite foods and libations. I felt a sinking feeling in my stomach, usually caused by the greasy meats. Old doc Maloney could see my sorrow as I said goodbye to all the tasty grub I've relished as I've wandered tr the trail. You ought to live, don't you? Old doc Maloney said. "'exasperated by his dull-witted patient. "'Now get out. Time for my nap.' "'I left the office and stood in the street in the bright sunshine "'and pondered my fate. "'Well, I thought, not for the first time, it is what it is. "'I had tempted to sashay into the last-chance saloon, "'but my sashayer wasn't working, so I plodded into the bar.' I'll have a diet sarsaparilla, I told the barkeep. He grunted, glanced at me with barely concealed contempt, and slammed the glass down on the bar. 
As I sipped my sarsaparilla, I yearned for a shot of rot gut. I thought of Beatrice Fam Flambeau, the lovely school marm who stole and shattered my heart. What would she think of my new lifestyle, I wondered. I smiled at the phantom sound of her laughter, which I always found as enchanting as chimes. That night, at the campfire, I stared into my... Oh, how it pains me to even say it. Salad. Oh, how desperately I wanted a hot dog burnt to a crisp and a heaping plate of beans with a side of jerky. Petey, my faithful canine companion, gnawed on a bone and unsuccessfully tried to hide a smile. His lifestyle remained unchanged. The campfire flickered as I poured some more vinaigrette on my sad-looking vittles. I am the lonesome cowboy, and here I sit on the trail, munching kale.
wasp. Steamed dumplings as a winter wasp whisks by my view of the land. Later, we trudge up a hill looking for a tree to chop and carry down. On the ground to the roof, a month in the living room, it smells so real. Then poof, to the curb, the trash men toss the tree inside their truck as another winter wasp whisks by, and I sigh while playing my glockenspiel.
And there you have it, episode 397 of Troubadours and Tours, with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Nijmi Zekaya Zorinko. Also, Dr. Michael Pavis, our associate producer. And Dominic Azzarelli, actor extraordinaire. And these musical artists. Bahamas, the Mountain Goats, Terrence Blanchard, P.J. Morton, and the E. Collective. The Marcus King Band, Vince Guaraldi Trio. And of course, Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Terrence Blanchard, and Brantford Marsalis, too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and do our best with this time. Take care.